0: This week's podcast is sponsored by Great Horn. Office 365 and G Suite require a modern cloud-native email security solution to protect against advanced threats, which legacy email gateway technology just isn't designed to catch. Only Greathorn delivers a next generation email security platform purpose built for cloud based communication systems. Built on a foundation of machine learning and automation, Greathorn delivers the industry's most effective and comprehensive email security solution and can be deployed and operational in less than five minutes. With its proprietary dataset built from hundreds of millions of uniquely analyzed threats, Greathorn combines the intelligence, fidelity, and precision necessary to prevent attacks from becoming breaches. Check them out at GreatHorn.com. Hello, and welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's episode of the podcast number 123, you've heard of business email compromise attacks, but what about business service impersonation scams? In our second segment, we'll speak with Kevin O'Brien, the CEO and co-founder of messaging security firm Greathorn, about business service impersonation attacks and how machine learning might provide a way to defend against them. But first... Marriott International acquired more than a chain of hotels when it bought Starwood three years ago. It acquired a whopper of a security compromise. This week, almost four years since that deal was announced, we found out how big a breach it was. Marriott disclosed to the public that information on some 500 million Starwood guests had been stolen from its reservation system. This follows the 2014 breach of its point-of-sale system that affected scores of hotels. To talk about what all this means, we invited security researcher Troy Hunt of the website Have I Been Pwned into the studio. In this conversation, Troy and I talk about what happened at Marriott and what kinds of crimes might follow on the heels of the theft of so much data. Uh,
1: Troy Hunt, uh, Australian security person. (laughs) Let's go with that. Yeah, so people will know of me mostly from Have I Been
0: Pwned uh, fame, I guess. We're here to talk about the big breach news this week, but before we get going, I figured since it's basically public information, maybe you'd care to tell me your Starward preferred guest number, Troy. Oh man, you, you
1: know what? I was literally just logging into my password manager to look because I'm sure that I have one somewhere. It's just one of those pieces of information that's just accumulated over
0: time, and I probably used it in a few hotels, and yeah, and now I'm yeah. <laughs> so. Now, now you're pwned. Yeah, now you—if uh, you hadn't been already, which you probably had—you definitely are now. So, oh no, I, I had been. <laughs> I, I I was very pwned before this. This is just another one. Yes, uh, these types of breaches that uh, basically touch everybody, give everybody's skin in the game. We're going to talk about kind of what the implications might be for consumers and individuals. But first, tell us what has happened there at Starwood or Marriott Starwood, I guess.
1: So we're chatting about this, I think, about 10 hours after the news is broken. So it's all pretty fresh. Uh, and, and, of course, it, it, it always happens when I go to bed because I'm on the other side of the world. So I uh, I woke up <laughs> and just saw a stream of tweets, uh, effectively, uh, about the Marriott having had an incident with uh, with about, let, let's call it half a billion instead of 500 million, because once you're using the B word, things just totally change scale. So about half a billion accounts, they believe, in, uh, were impacted by this. And they've said, look, it's it's 300-something million they think sort of has uh, more comprehensive personal information and some of the other accounts less so. But I, I think the thing that kind of stood out to me most significantly right off the bat was the acknowledgement that th- there had been a network compromise in 2014 and that the implication here is, is that that access yep. has been persistent across the period of four years, which would be a yep. really, really significant thing.
0: Yeah. And I think as Brian Krebs pointed out, that breach in 2014, which was disclosed in 2015, coincidentally, just after Starwood was acquired by Marriott, was a point of service um, or rather point of sales breach. It was cash registers and such. Uh, But as Mr. Krebs pointed out, it wouldn't be at all unusual for uh, sophisticated attackers to pivot from a point of sale system to other parts of the network. And that may we don't know. Uh, but that may be what happened here. We've certainly seen that
1: in a, in other cases, right? I mean, this was the, the situation with the target breach some years ago. So the, the the premise of gaining access to one point in the network and then you know, using that as the, as the foothold for other access is certainly uh, tried and tested. It will be really interesting to see as the passage of time goes by if we do get more insight into what that actually looked like. Uh, that, that, that to me is going to be a fascinating outcome of it and, and hopefully one that we'll actually get to see some details on.
0: Uh, Now, the data we're talking about here, it's actually fairly detailed, Um, name, uh, address, obviously your, you know, Starwoods guest number, uh, email address, passport number. Talk a little bit about how that data in these times that we live in where data obviously has value might be used or maybe we should say weaponized against people it's a bit of a
1: mixed bag in terms of severity and if if we start from sort of our garden variety run-of-the-mill data breach stuff yeah, credentials email addresses passwords we're going to see credential stuffing attacks out of this surely and this is something which is just it's just an absolute scourge at the moment it is so pervasive Uh, And I have so many companies reach out to me and say, look, we're getting absolutely hammered by a credential stuffing attack. We've gone and checked a bunch of the accounts on have I been pwned. They're in there. People are working through the same list that you have. And inevitably, this is something which which just continues to pay dividends.
0: And for our listeners, uh, credential stuffing is basically people are reusing passwords between e-commerce sites and business sites or different e-commerce sites. And so once they've been leaked from one organization, they then can be used to shop around and see if you can break into other accounts that that person may use, uh, you know, got their email, you got credentials they've used and you just kind of keep going until you score a hit.
1: Yeah. And you know, that the challenge there as well is that think about what this means from the perspective of the service operator. So we're saying that someone comes to your website, they have a legitimate username and password of of a victim and somehow you're meant to keep them out. Uh, And there are ways of doing this, but this is an extremely difficult problem because the attacker literally has the password, which is normally something people remember. And the username, the attacker literally has this and they enter it into the website and they gain access, which is how people are meant to log on. But it's not the right people. (laughs) You know, we're saying we've got to somehow keep these guys out, which is a difficult challenge. But in terms of the the classes of data that are being exposed, credentials alone are obviously bad news. Passport stuff is really worrying because when you get to things like passport numbers, This is often used for identity verification purposes as well. You know, knowing someone's passport number, that is a piece of data that we would normally like to try and keep very secret. Uh, And really the only sort of saving grace there is that it is something that can be rotated, but Geez, even that is painful. And look, I mean, I, I certainly haven't had an email from Starwood yet. I'm I'm kind of curious to see how they're actually even going to communicate with people.
0: Well, they'll probably send you something with a link you should click on,
1: <laughs> yeah, or, or an attached PDF document. Oh, god, we're seeing that the very sort of anti-patterns of of sort of safe, secure communications or trustworthy communications play out as part of these data breaches. So we had York City Council this week in the UK send notices out to people saying that they had had. They had had an incident. There's another sordid of story behind that. But their communication was a PDF document attached to an email. And and it just had text in it. Like, why are you doing this? <laughs> you know, what is the point of this?
0: You, as you said, run the Have I Been Pawned website. Have you seen a response in terms of the traffic to that site um, just since this nose broke this morning? I did actually go and have a look today and, and I haven't seen
1: any, any noticeable uptick. But it, it's tracking at about a quarter of a million unique visitors a day anyway at the moment. So it's, it's oh, quite – Yeah, no, no. Look, I'm not surprised anyone else. It's, It's got this sort of big baseline that means spikes in traffic that I might have noticed some time ago now seem to sort of fly under the radar. I, I did see a little bit of a spike earlier in the week. The BBC had a, a, a nice piece that featured it. Inevitably, if the data does ever turn up publicly and
0: I load it, oh, my God,
1: that's going to be a big day.
0: <laughs> you know, that would- Right. I mean, just wait till the Security Ledger podcast hits on Monday or Tuesday <laughs> – I mean, I don't know. I'll start adding those clouds right now. (laughs) <laughs> you should. You have been warned. As we mentioned, I mean, this this is a huge breach. It's not the biggest breach. It doesn't get up into Yahoo territory, um, but it's quite large. And it comes at the end of a week in which it only serves to eclipse a whole bunch of other fairly sizable breaches. Atrium Health, Dunkin' Donuts, as you mentioned, Dell Computer uh, talked about a credential stuffing attack. I guess I'd ask you, what's going on here? Is this merely... Uh, more and speedier disclosure because of GDPR, or is it just a bad week in data security?
1: It's interesting. I think it's sort of a combination of factors. And, you know, the the first part of it is, like, this is just normal today, right? Like, just this ongoing spate of data breaches. Uh, Every single day I get sent notifications from people saying, look, uh, I got sent this, uh, maybe you'd like to share it. I think what we might have seen with the likes of GDPR is more pressure for disclosure due to potential ramifications, so so that part of it I think is very positive. On the other hand, we are seeing cases come before local regulators under the context of GDPR where the services have been located outside of the EU, and basically the regulator go and oh, it's too hard. Now, for example, with large data aggregators, US-based aggregators that just collect data and then sell access to it have had data yep. breaches and, and one case in particular, uh, someone reported them to their local Belgian regulator and the regulator wrote back and went, look, they're in the US, they're outside of our jurisdiction. Which of course is is counter to the belief that extraterritoriality applies and that everyone's got to play by GDPR rules. But it's, it's quite interesting to actually see what it looks like in practice now as it's uh, as we're sort of half a year into it.
0: And obviously, you know, uh, Marriott, Starwood with 500 million users, you know, or victims, hundreds of millions of those probably are going to be in the EU. What do you think they have in store from what we know about what the rules of the GDPR are and what types of bad behavior they are particularly keen to crack down on? Um, My guess is Marriott might have uh, some big bills coming their way. First of all, as a a uh, non-EU
1: data subject, I kind of lament the fact that I'm not afforded the same protections <laughs> you know, as other people. And I, I guess where I'm going with this is I would really like organizations to uh, follow the path that, that GDPR is setting them on, not because they're worried about getting a penalty from a European regulator, but because it's just the right thing to do. You know, I would really sure. hope that an Aussie company down here that, that wasn't fearful of GDPR ramifications would
0: follow the same path. We're in the privacy hinterlands here in the United States as well. So I, sh- I share your lament.
1: Yeah, look, we're, we're pretty much in the same boat. I mean, <laughs> mind you, the, the US has got state-by-state regulation around mandatory disclosure, which mm-hmm. makes things kind of weird. But, uh, but i tell you what, particularly in places like California, you're a long way ahead of us <laughs> in terms yeah. of mandatory disclosure laws too. Yeah. Um, look, I, I think that the thing that, that's interesting in terms of the way regulators in general apply penalties to tends to come down to a variety of factors including things like the impact on the individual uh so yeah, is the impact of of this data breach going to be the same as ashley madison well yeah, I, I don't think anyone's going to kill themselves because their marriott account has been exposed so i guess that's good <laughs> uh it you know there, there might have been card data exposed by the senate it seems to be a bit of ambiguity over how keys were protected so if there was financial damage well that that could obviously be quite serious not to mention the Potential PCI ramifications, so another another sort of regulatory angle there. I think it will be interesting to see if there was sort of any negligence on behalf of Marriott slash Starwood here uh, as well. So uh, certainly there is a, a threshold beyond which we say, well, look, there there are sometimes very highly sophisticated attacks, and organizations can can do many good things to try and defend against them. But at the end of the day, a, an adversary with enough money and enough time is going to get through. Now. Was that the case here? Or was there just a series of systemic failures in their infrastructure? Um, so these are the sorts of things that will will determine how they're judged.
0: So in the case of Marriott, it seems that what caught the attention of the hotel chain was a uh, effort to steal some some recent data, uh, guest data, I think up to around September 2018. But then they discovered the longer breach. It went back to, uh, you know, 2014. and And that's where we get the you know, the 500 million um, victims. I guess the question would be, is it likely that this data has already turned up in, you know, uh, dark markets or, or underground cyber criminal forums that it's it's more or less already there in have I been pawned in one way or another? Um, or it, or do we think this data is yet to appear? And if so, I guess, where, where would you look for it to appear? It, it's sort of interesting to look <clears throat> excuse me, look at the way uh, this data
1: tends to distribute and and, and I guess reach socialisation after incidents. And if we think back to things like LinkedIn, I mean, LinkedIn was a great example. So their data breach was back in about 20, 2012. And they knew there'd been an incident. I think at the time they thought, oh, maybe it was about 5 million records or something. But uh, I, I don't think they felt there was anything of, of sort of too much substance there. Now, inevitably, that data was abused over that period of time. Someone had it, they held on to it, eventually got to the point where it went went uh, went onto public marketplaces. And in cases like this, we, we often see this data sort of used for, I guess, more discrete uh, exploitation purposes, and then it's put up for sale. So now once it's for sale, well, everyone knows about it, but, hey, they're still selling it for five Bitcoin a pop, so they're going to make some money out of it. And then a few people get their hands on it and it starts to distribute and the value of it goes way down because the supply is up. So it sort of mm-hmm. starts to go through this cycle. And, and the question, I guess, for, this, for the Starwood situation is, has this data actually been used during that period? And are we now up to the mm-hmm. point where it might appear for sale? I'll tell you one thing, I'm going to get people contacting me and saying, hey, we've got the Starwood data and a bunch of it's just going to be absolute rubbish. <laughs> so, so that always happens. But, you know, th- then if we look at something like the, the Yahoo situation, yeah, clearly that was a really major incident. But I have never seen any credible evidence that that data is out there in any sort of broad circulation either.
0: So, you know, maybe it never will be. What's being done with this data? So, I mean, when, as you said, with LinkedIn, you know, the data leaks, it shows up on a dark marketplace, uh, you know, for sale. Okay, well, that's what that crime was about. And these crimes where the data never appears, at least in, in a way that, reaches public notice um what do you think is happening with it
1: look i guess it's a it's an issue of what the motivations are of the of the attacker who's gained the data so it, if we look at different incidents and we look at the way they've played out i mean take something like ashley madison the, the motivation there was obviously damage to the organization there was uh, no attempt that i'm aware of at least to to, to sell the data uh, there was a notice put out saying look we want you to shut down the service because we have you know ethical and philosophical differences of view uh, shut it down or we're going to dump it uh, and then they they went to great lengths to dump that as far as possible they they seeded it in many different places and torrented it extensively and it was just like maximum damage so their motivation mm-hmm. uh was was you know maybe maybe there was a little bit of um uh, activism there because they, they don't like the whole idea of adultery and everything fair enough whatever <laughs> but obviously there are other cases where it is hacktivism in the traditional sense of like let's just show this organization's got vulnerabilities and flaws and you know possibly we don't agree mm-hmm. with what they're doing. Let's just mm-hmm. dump data and make it available to everyone. We don't have any expectation they're going to shut down. I, I guess the point there is that that's not necessarily a financial motive. Evidently, there are a huge number of incidents that, that do happen that, that are financially motivated. Uh, and I would suggest that of those, that there's only a small amount we know about compared to those that are more sort of hacktivism related where sort of publicity is part of the MO. I think there's a there's an interesting question to be asked here around what organisations should be doing differently. You know, most of, in fact, most science the journalists they're like, oh, well, what's this? What's the one thing that companies should do to fix this? <laughs> so the problem is, it is a difficult challenge. If we think about the the various sort of things that we've touched on today, you know, everything from credential stuffing, where someone has legitimate credentials and they're trying to log in, you got to stop it. That's hard. The, the the bit that I'm a little bit sympathetic for the likes of of the Marriott with as well is that this is a really large organisation spread out all around the world with probably hundreds of thousands of terminals everywhere from back office to front desks they've got inevitably just an endless array of attacks coming against them it it would be a really really hard thing to consistently and reliably stay on top of and and I would suggest that once an organization gets to sufficient size and complexity it's almost impossible not to have an incident of some kind and then the question is how bad it is and yeah, this is inevitably. I think what we're seeing now. I mean, that the, the very premise of having had someone in the network for potentially four years. Well, I can sort of see yeah. how that happens in a very large organisation. Uh, certainly, we've yeah. seen it with the likes of Sony Pictures before as well. That was that was allegedly a year yeah. that someone was in the well, network.
0: Right and this was an again let's remember this this breach came to Marriott by way of an acquisition they bought Starwood and and Starwood had been compromised at the time that they were acquired and I guess as we're learning now never really fully got clear of that compromise and so I guess one one message would be to companies that are out there doing M&A cyber risk is real and you better get very comfortable with you know what it is that you're buying and how secure their you know environment is right
1: yeah i mean as as i guess as much as you can be certain about that as well there are a bunch of really important principles here which i, I think that we just often neglect uh, so, so yeah for example in this case did starwood really need all of the data they had on these people going back that far mm-hmm. Uh, And this Mm -hmm. is one of the nice principles of GDPR around data minimization. You know, what do we actually need and how long do we need it for? Now, I I did just look at my password manager while we're talking, and I I, (laughs) I do have a Starwood account, damn it. I don't know how much information they have on me, and I don't know if they really still need it. I can't remember if I've given my passport number to them. You know, do I really need to give my passport number to a hotel? Now, I'm sure someone's going to pop up and say, yes, you have to because blah, 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 blah. But it just kind of seems like the sort of piece of data that do I really want to give it willy-nilly to
0: every single hotel I stay in? Right. Right. And from their perspective, if they're going to, if they need to take it for some reason, do they really need to hold on to it after you've checked out, right? Yeah, well, that's a very good point too. But the the, the challenge here is that
1: organizations have a, a somewhat selfish view of data, uh, and I've, there's a really good saying someone gave me. So I, I testified in Congress just over a year ago on the impact of data breaches on knowledge-based authentication. And, and before I I did my testimony, I blogged and I said, look, you know, this is like a big thing. What should I tell these people? And someone gave me this really epic saying and and, and I did use it in my testimony and they said organizations view data as an asset. They never view it as a liability. Uh, and and what he was saying is that they're just trying to collect as much of it as possible because the more data we have on the more people, the more value we have as an mm-hmm. organization but sure. we're not thinking about
0: what the actual impact on the individuals is. And certainly understanding the more data you collect, the the, the higher your costs are going to be to secure it. And and if those costs aren't going up, uh, if you're not spending more time and resources and attention, understanding what data you have and securing it, that maybe that in and of itself is a red flag, right?
1: Yeah, d- exactly. And again, as organizations get larger and larger, that becomes a harder problem. Um but part yeah. of the, the problem too is I as an individual am not sure how to figure out what my exposure is. And I'll, I'll give you sort of two angles on this. So one angle is I I would imagine that if I log on to my Starwood account now, I'm not going to be able to see everything that they have on me and everything that was possibly disclosed because there's going to be a bunch of fields and attributes and tables and things in databases, which is just not surfaced via the UI anywhere. So being able to discover your own exposure, even on an organization by organization basis is hard. And then the other thing, which I have sort of been pushing for quite some time in my sort of one-man show of what companies should do right, and I don't know if I'm ever going to get much traction on this, but post-data breach, I really firmly, strongly believe that every organisation should have a facility to provide to people precisely the data that appeared in the breach. And, And the reason why I say this is that every time I load a data breach into Have I Been Pwned, people pop up and they say, hey, can you send me the data? And I've written... Blog post blog blog post about all the reasons I can't do that. Everything from the fact that there's a bunch of sensitive information there, I really don't have a way of of transferring to the masses through to the fact that I'm one bloke running this and giving it to you as a free service. I really can't scale myself there. So I say to people, you know, go back to the organization and ask them. And time after time, people say, look, I tried, but they didn't reply. Or they said it's not their responsibility. And that really bugs me because just as a basic principle, I reckon if you lose someone's data,
0: you should be responsible for telling them what you lost. Troy Hunt of Have I Been Pwned, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on Security Ledger Podcast. It's been great. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. We were talking to security researcher Troy Hunt, the founder of HaveIBeenPwned.com, about last week's announcement that Marriott International had information on some 500 million guests stolen by hackers. You're listening to the Security Ledger podcast. This week's podcast is sponsored by GreatHorn with its proprietary dataset built from hundreds of millions of uniquely analyzed threats. GreatHorn combines the intelligence, fidelity, and precision necessary to prevent attacks from becoming breaches. Check them out at greathorn.com. Up next, what do ransomware attacks, executive impersonation scams, and remote access trojans all have in common? Well, they're all likely to visit you by way of email. Nearly half a century old, email is still a vital conduit for personal and business communications and still the single largest avenue of attack against your organization for everyone from petty criminals to nation-state hacking groups. As our next guest tells us, that's because email threats are asymmetric. Kevin O'Brien is the CEO of Great Horn. In this conversation, he says that business service impersonation attacks are a great example of email's asymmetric threat. They leverage a widespread Use of cloud platforms like Microsoft's Office 365 and Google's G Suite to fool users into giving up their credentials or installing malicious software that can give hackers a foothold on your network. In this conversation, Kevin and I talk about business service impersonation attacks and how the adoption of cloud based platforms like Office 365 hasn't eliminated email based threats so much as move them around.
2: I'm Kevin O'Brien. I'm, I'm the CEO and co founder of Great Horn but really I'm a cybersecurity guy. I've been doing this in various roles and at various companies for about 20 years. Had the opportunity to join a company called At Stake uh, back in 2000, uh, the very beginning of that company's growth. And it was a a group of hackers, uh, the Loft Heavy Industries group, and uh, some folks from the business side getting together to begin working on what would become one of the earliest security companies in the Boston area. And about four years ago, I started Great Horn. Uh, We are a next generation email security company, 100% cloud native and focused on the kinds of threats that have been missed by the legacy security vendors for now years. And there are some good reasons and and some head-scratchers about why those things get missed, and I'm sure we'll cover some of that today. But that's the problem space that we focus on and and what we solve.
0: So one of the trends that you guys have noted is just a a big increase in what you term business service impersonation attacks. Can you talk a little bit about what those are and how they might be different from other types of email-based phishing attacks?
2: Yeah, and, and let me bring it to a practical example. So you and I are recording a podcast together, and you use a piece of software to do that. If I were the attacker going after you and, and going after a uh, security ledger, I would say, well, how can I get you to open something and log in to something and get your credentials? Well, maybe I will impersonate your podcast software, which is a SaaS application. And I will begin by uh, figuring out who you're gonna have on your show or who you've had on your show. And then I'm going to go to whichever CEO you interviewed last week and I'm going to send them an impersonated email from your your podcast.com software, let's say. And I'm going to rewrite my from address so it says Robert. And, uh, some common to follow up, and I've got the link for our podcast. Please go listen to it here. You'll be prompted to log in to my SharePoint, and I'll send that to your your uh, former interviewee. And when they get it, they say, "Oh yeah, that looks totally right." And uh, yeah, that was the software we used, and, and I know Paul, so this is fine. And they'll they'll go open it up and. Uh, When they do, if I'm really slick, the actual destination will redirect to something like securityledger.com. So now that user says, oh, it just didn't work. I logged in, but it didn't show me something crazy. It, It brought me back there, so they'll call you and you'll say, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, that attacker just impersonated a business service and got credentials. And that kind of attack is really, really easy to put together. And like I said a moment ago, it's all about social engineering. And unless you've got a user, and think about your typical CEO, are they opening up the headers of every email and inspecting them to determine if it really comes from a third party service that they don't personally? Of course not. So this is what we mean by business service impersonation. It is the technical manipulation of email to appear to come from a service that somebody recognizes and likely trusts, combined with... Most often a credential theft attack that in and of itself will be fairly subtle and expected and might even be queued up in the text of the email. Hey, you're going to get this thing, you're going to log in and then you're going to look at my website, you're going to look at this piece of content that I'm sending you. This is a huge threat for most organizations because it's so hard to spot.
0: Yeah. So, first of all, how dare you implicate the security ledger in your nefarious plot to defraud CEOs and other upstanding professionals that we have on our show? Guilty as charged. Guilty as charged. I've seen how your mind works and it scares me. Yeah, I mean, you can see how that would be um, a, a very difficult, if not impossible, attack to spot for all the reasons you stated. There's context. There's a there's a history of a conversation which most people are just going to assume is is uh, you know this is a continuation of that conversation. There's a link, not an attachment that can be scanned, and and the link itself may not be malicious, right? And That attack in and of itself, while it does require a fair amount of research, it may not actually require a hack of a target's computer or access to their inbox, right? You can more or less infer these relationships and infer the conversation just from what you can observe publicly through open sources.
2: That's exactly right. And what you're getting at is a a point about the kinds of risks that we're dealing with here which are that they're asymmetrical. Uh, Asymmetrical risks are in all other parts of kind of the risk management uh, space, the ones we're the most concerned with, because as the attacker, what I am going to get is access to your inbox, your credentials, every third-party service that you log into using that username and password. And as a defender, the attacker doesn't need access to those things first. So it's incredibly difficult for me to go and deal with something uh, where the exposure that I present to the world is just that there's an executive in the world who has an email address somewhere. We can do better, right? So the, the advantage that you get to there is that on the defense side, you literally do have access to that individual. And sometimes the way that I like to describe this problem is through the use of a theoretical magic wand. And what I mean by that is Mm -hmm. that if you were the CISO of this Fortune 500, you had a magic wand and you could have infinite resources, infinite staff and infinite time, how would you stop email attacks? You would look at those headers for every message. You would figure out, has this person, my executive, had email contact with this individual before? How like or unlike the real security ledger emails is this one that we just got? is this person sending a url that we've seen lots and lots of times or is this a little unusual Mm -hmm. technology gives us that magic wand we have to build it correctly but the idea of solving computationally expensive problems that is those problems that take a long time for a human to do through the use of automation is the story of security evolution over the last five or ten years and it's where we've addressed this problem from a perimeter security perspective with cloud access security brokers. Is where you see next-gen antivirus and anti-malware going, where they're using machine learning techniques rather than blacklists. And it's high time that we do the same thing for email security. Uh, and that's really the jumping off point for, for my business, but also uh, where I think you'll see much of the email security industry go over the next few years.
0: One of the things that you uh, you, being Great Horn, but also you personally, have talked about is how the increasing use of you know uh, web-based services and applications, you know Office three sixty five and and so on, have exacerbated this problem, or certainly made the attacker's job easier. Can you talk about? how some of these massively scaled cloud platforms that are very widely used actually can contribute to this business service impersonation problem?
2: Sure, we think that organizations that have selected things like Office 365 or G Suite, which are the two primary cloud-based email systems you see in the business world today, have made a smart choice and they've actually reduced their security risk overall. It hasn't eliminated security risk, it's just changed where those risks are located from traditional spam or traditional malware and and virus-based attacks to things that are far more targeted. But you have alluded to where it's also broadened that exposure set, which is around the use of the email address as a primary credential set for accessing a multitude of services. Organizations that are sharp are doing things like having a single sign-on strategy. And so my email address uh, will let me into my G Suite account or my Office 365 account. And then I've got a whole bunch of third-party apps and services that using OAuth, using technical API integration, can access that environment. That might be anything from my sales reporting technology to my HR system to uh, my, my financial software. What that means, though, is that if an attacker gets my email address, if they pop my account and they now have the ability to literally log in as me, and MFA helps with this, but it's not categorical, then they also get access to all of those third-party services. Secondly, it's really easy for an attacker to create a targeted attack that looks like one of those third-party services. I don't have to hack into your laptop. I just need to get you to put your credentials in somewhere by making you think you're logging into one of those systems and as early as as 2013 2014 we started seeing this problem emerge and that's why the casby market took off but now we're seeing it move from file and storage based risk where apps would be able to steal data to credential and authentication based risks where impersonations of those services themselves leads to the complete compromise of that entire chain of access and authorization.
0: Right. And and that can be fueled by things that are beyond the organization's control, like password reuse, for example, right?
2: That's right. And so you see multi-factor authentication as being one mechanism by which people can harden that part of the perimeter. MFA is great, but MFA secures someone from logging in as you. It doesn't necessarily stop the impersonation of uh, the rest of these services. And, and so you start to get this, like I said a moment ago, asymmetric threat surface. And so you have to have some way to secure and think about the problem at its locus in, inside of the email account itself not just at the perimeter, which is what we've traditionally tried to do.
0: I mean, we've seen examples of of this type of attack very prominently. In fact, you know, certainly going back to the email hack of all email p- hacks, which was John Podesta and the Hillary Clinton campaign, uh, the spear phishing email he was sent was a password reset email designed to look like it came from Google, from Gmail. That was an avenue by which uh, login credentials for his account were uh, compromised how big of a problem is this uh, as you guys see it relative to the again the the vast variety of different uh, email based threats out there that are, or attacks that are going on
2: email is and remains one of the most important security priorities for organizations up and down the fortune 500 and beyond. Uh, a survey that we ran in 2018 showed that it was literally the number one security priority for the CISOs whom we spoke with, uh, and only uh, a few points ahead of data security overall, and then network security trailing is the third place. People understand that email issues and email risks are horizontal. They touch every member of an organization, and they're high risk. That is if I can convince your CFO to wire me a million dollars or I can convince someone that they've got a password reset, like happened with with Podesta, I have access to everything. And that Mm -hmm. is the risk that most organizations are grappling with. Security is not an either-or proposition. And getting this right requires layered approaches to how we think about these problems. Unfortunately, the security vendor side of the equation has for a long time said if you just buy this product these problems will go away it's got to yeah. be part of a comprehensive approach to how you think about these things you should have multi-factor authentication you should set spf dkim and dmarc up correctly and you should have a integrated email security approach that looks at the kinds of things we're describing here and not rely on the tech that you probably brought in when you were also going into colo's and dealing with racks of servers that might go offline which is when the gateway market was started but it's not either or. It's not a silver bullet that if you just buy, even a piece of technology like Horn, as, as much as I'm a supporter of it, obviously, there are more things that you need to do to protect yourself. Uh, some of them don't require that you buy anything. They just need you to set things up correctly.
0: So let's talk about Greathorn now. I mean, these are the types of problems that your platform targets or addresses explicitly. So what are some of the mechanisms, like within the Great Horn platform, that would help email recipients, to detect and block or at least not fall for, for example, a a business uh, service impersonation attack?
2: Sure. The shameless promotion part of our podcast together. (laughs) We think about it this way. There are essentially four areas of concern when you're dealing with email security. You can have an imposter attack, and that can be much of what we described here, an imposter attack that leverages someone you know, or a service you know. GreatHorn provides real-time detection of those kinds of attacks based on patented technology that we've built that looks at and categorizes your relationships, your sending patterns, and then uh, how a, a given sender typically sends globally based on a massive data set that's based across four years and, and many, many customers, and hundreds of millions of emails analyzed. There's also the the payload and the payload, we've talked about this. It might be uh, an attachment and we provide comprehensive attachment analysis and isolation and and the ability to pull an attachment apart and figure out if it might be a risk, but it could also be non-attachment based. It could be a URL in a message that is going to be one of those credential theft attacks. Great Horn allows organizations to sandbox every URL that they receive, meaning that they get rewritten transparently to the end user And that lets us both look at that message and determine if it's on a blacklist and we incorporate threat intelligence as most email security vendors do to to identify blacklisted sites, but also to use statistical and probabilistic analytics to say, this is unusual. Hey Paul, you just got this message. It doesn't look like the kind of sender you typically get mail from. This URL goes to a a blogspot or blogger.com or Weebly address. And there's probably something funny about that and present that to you in, in a full browser isolation view so that you don't immediately click through and give your credentials away. Uh, and then finally, we, we actually have a mailbox level protection functionality, uh, and that's a plugin for, for most users inside of an Outlook environment where all of that hidden data about what's going on in the message can be turned into human readable text right there on your mobile client or right there in your inbox in, in Outlook. And you're able to see, hey, this might not be who you think it is, and you get the ability to say, yeah, I'm not going to click on that. I'm going to mark that as fish, and all of that otherwise hidden information is made super transparent. So you combine all of this. That's that's what we do from a threat protection perspective, and then we also have comprehensive incident response. So the reason that matters and why I say it that way, we have a healthcare client that we work with who had a breach just before they brought us on board based on an attack, and those guys went with 365 about 20,000 people. Went through the remediation process using the in app e discovery from O365 and a bunch of PowerShell scripts. It took them three days to recover from that attack. That's three days where email was locked out. They had a huge breach notification they had to put out to their customers. We have a similarly sized customer who saw something come through that was fishy, that Greathorn flagged. They took 30,000 instances of that using our incident response out of mailboxes in under two minutes. So having that kind of IR changes that time to response metric and for the yeah. security professionals out there, you know TTR is a huge metric to drive down because it means that you go from what you see in the Verizon reports of days or even weeks where you're exposed to seconds or minutes with something like Greathorn in place.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I mean, just because we talk about spear phishing and targeted attacks doesn't mean, in the context of your organization, that they're not sending this stuff out indiscriminately to pretty much every email address they can get a hold of, right?
2: That's right. But yeah, at the end of the day, for the typical user, this stuff fades into the background. And it's only when something is mm-hmm. unusual that something like Greathorn will step in and rewrite the message or rewrite the link or send off the alarm bell and say, be careful that's not really Kevin O'Brien. And that's really what security software should do, right? It should protect users without getting in the way of their ability to work normally uh, under typical circumstances. We're coming up on the end of the year as we're recording this. I've been now solely thinking about email security for about four years and cloud security for about 10. And I think that in the next 12 to 18 months, we are going to see a, major data breach that actually incorporates what you alluded to earlier, which is this concept of a multi-step attack. Someone's credentials are going to be stolen from a spear phishing or business email compromise attack, but it's going to move into the rest of the business. And for an organization that has all of their critical information in SharePoint or Google Drive, that spear phishing attack that leads to that data breach and that data exposure is going to be categorically the cause of the breach and not just associated with it, which is what we've seen with the exception of some of the large profile things like Podesta, we haven't really seen in private industry yet. So I think that this is a problem right. that needs to be solved. I think it's more urgent than ever before as we walk into 2019. Uh, and I think, you know, from a, a approach perspective, I think it's going to be a business service impersonation that does it.
0: Okay, man. You heard it here first on Security Ledger podcast. Well, to check in next December. And see if you've been proven right. I have a feeling you're going to be proven right.
2: I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) I hope not, too.
0: Gratifying as it would be to be right. That's right. Kevin O'Brien of uh, Great Horn, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us on the
2: Security Ledger podcast. Truly a pleasure. Thanks, Paul.
0: We were talking with Kevin O'Brien about business service impersonation attacks. Kevin is the CEO of the firm Great Horn. You've been listening to the Security Ledger podcast. This week's podcast was sponsored by Greathorn. With its proprietary data set built from hundreds of millions of uniquely analyzed threats, Greathorn combines the intelligence, fidelity, and precision necessary to prevent attacks from becoming breaches. Check them out at greathorn.com.